What does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hartness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me on the show is Jeremy Dean, and we speak about emotions at work and how to facilitate emotional conversations that lead to a cultural change. So stay tuned. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. And now, lean back to be inspired. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Like I, I said before, I feel I feel really at ease and curious and thoughtful about what's ahead. Yes, me too. I'm really looking forward to an exploration with you. And I always start with the same question. When did you start calling yourself a facilitator? And actually, do you? It's such a great question, right? Getting me to or getting us to consider the labels that we put on ourselves. And I don't think I, I've ever called myself a facilitator. I've never told somebody when they asked me what I did that I am a facilitator. I think facilitation has always just been part of the work that I've done, always been part of the jobs that I've had rather than it being the label. It's, mm. it's been part of the job. It's been part of what I do rather than the thing that I do. So, yeah, I think the, the short answer is I don't and have never called myself a facilitator. It's just always been part of it and I've I've always tried to learn new ways, more interesting ways, better ways to facilitate because the work I've done in marketing, advertising, design, brand strategy, and now emotions in the workplace has all been about facilitating conversations between people and groups of people. But yeah, I don't think I've ever called myself a facilitator. Yeah, emotions at the workplace as a focus, I think. Many people in the audience, many facilitators in the audience will get very jealous. <laughs> Sounds like a dream come true. And uh, just one reflection, I find it fascinating. I almost have the impression that we can differentiate the world in the groups who wear a label with pride. I am a facilitator. And those who refuse labels and rather describe what they are doing instead of who they are in doing this. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, but like those labels are so much around identity as well. Who I am as a person, what I do, how we, what value we put on our identity, and how we then show it to the world. Plus, how we want to be perceived in the world as well. Those labels do make a difference because meanings are, there's meaning attributed to them. I guess maybe from from my perspective, I've I've always wanted to feel quite rebellious and being quite rebellious as well so i've tend to shun those types of labels or shunned being put into a box that says mm. if i'm a facilitator this means that or that means this and i've gone well maybe it's not that maybe it's something else and always try to look for those sort of maybe it's the antagonist in me or the or the rebellion or the the rebel in me it says i don't want to i don't want to conform to the, the traditional meaning of those labels like so that's probably a little bit of why I've never called myself one. Yeah. And it's funny when I think of rebellious, it's rather the loud, the maybe a little bit aggressive image that comes up. And at the same time, when I think 
rebellious in the context in which you work is daring to bring the emotional conversations to the workplace, to the professional setting to talk about emotional culture. That's also very rebellious, but in a very different way. Yeah, not the traditional form of rebellion that people would think of, like you no. said. It's a quiet, it's almost a quiet rebellion. Mm. It's a rebellion that's happening in the shadows almost, although I'm on a mission to bring it out of the shadows, the conversation about emotions in the workplace and the impact of collective emotions. But it's certainly breaking, or my mission anyway, is to break the conventional notion of the conversations that happen in the workplace. We shouldn't talk about emotions at work. They don't matter. Uh, what's the ROI? This is a waste of time. Those types of things that people believe to be true. Yeah. And so I'm rebelling against that. I'm rebelling against the traditional way of building workplace culture or developing leaders by injecting emotions into that conversation, by facilitating, by being a facilitator of emotional conversations, I guess. So, yeah, I'm certainly coming back to your question about are you a facilitator? Do you call yourself one? I do that a lot and it just happens to be, it happens to be I facilitate conversations about emotions. So I'm certainly a facilitator, but it is rebellious because people don't want to do this. Well, no, sorry, I'll rephrase that. People do want to do this, it turns out. People want to talk about their emotions, especially at work. They just don't know how. Uh, and I'm, yeah, and I'm helping facilitate that. And I'm, I'm curious on many different levels. I'm curious on the why level. Why is that, that it's so difficult to speak about emotions? And you said they don't know how. Maybe that's one reason, but I think there's also maybe fear of judgment, workplace culture in general. And I'm curious, how are you doing? How do you facilitate that? And then I have a provocative question, and I will write it down so that I don't forget it. Well, there's insight even in your question there, saying that people might be fear fearful of the judgment or how they're perceived for expressing themselves, talking about emotions. That's an emotion in itself, the fear of being judged. Mm. And so that exists. But when I say people don't know how, is that we're not given permission, so that's one, but we're not, we don't have the labels, we don't have the, the mechanism, we don't have the tools to talk about it. So although we might be afraid, we're not even taught how to. Culturally, in society, in our family structures, in workplaces, we're not taught how. We don't, we're not given the tool. And by tool, I'm, in, in this world, it's we're not given the language. Mm. So we're not taught the words, we're not taught the labels, we're not taught what the emotions mean. And so at its core, simply we help we give people those labels the emotion labels so they can they can then use them they can select them they can choose them and then they can use that to express them because when you ask people how do you feel we might have said this in the very first thing before we started recording we said how are you and we i think i said good we might have good happy sad mad or glad as emotions that labels but if you only know those five emotions or you only know words or have the labels for those five emotions you can't actually connect at any deeper level because you're stuck at i'm good or i'm bad or i'm happy or i'm sad but if i told you this morning well i did it a little bit i said i'm feeling at ease i'm curious and thoughtful i'm also overjoyed because i found out we're going to have a third baby 
like I've I've got the tool. Yeah, I know how to to have these conversations because I've got the words. But most of us, most people, don't have the words. They don't have the labels. So we give people those labels. And then it's also related. So thank you for elaborating that. And it almost feels as if there's also culture attached or these expectations. So usually when we ask, how are you doing? Are we, do we feel safe enough to actually elaborate and go there and say something different from the standard answer? Because I think one risk is that to go there and elaborate or use answers that are different to only find out that the other person is actually not listening anymore. Or that the answer, other person, and this has happened, where I would say, I'm actually not so good. And then the answer, oh, I'm glad. And then continue the conversation because they haven't even listened because nobody expects another answer than good and you. Mm. Yeah, and that's the difficulty. And the thing I've come to realize is that you have to start with doing it for yourself mm. and not be concerned of the perception of others or how that might make them feel in a way which sounds kind of like it's a lack of empathy and compassion right but if i'm able to label that i'm feeling anxious restless and uncertain because of what's happening in my life right now that's a form of me being able to manage and cope with that there's this really amazing quote that you have to name it to tame it by dan siegel and that's built on this this notion that by labeling our unpleasant emotions we actually reduce the unpleasantness of the experience of them at a neurological level. And that's fascinating because I only learned about that five years ago. And imagine that, the power of labeling your unpleasant emotions. So I've been brought up in a world where you're not supposed to express how you feel, especially unpleasant ones. Like keep that to yourself, keep that behind closed doors. Don't burden other people with that. But the science would say, and from my experience, that labeling those unpleasant emotions reduces the unpleasantness for me, which allows me to manage and cope better, which then creates better connections with the people that I'm dealing with on a day-to-day basis, which so ultimately helps them because I turn up free from the unpleasantness of those emotions that I'm experiencing. And I think there's, yes, yes. And I think it has also to do either with shame, because if we speak it out, we take the shame away and then suddenly it's okay. So it's easier to cope with it. And once we label it or name it, there's a notion of curiosity to it. Oh, now we see it, we can look at it. And mm. curiosity cannot coexist with other emotions. I read that some sometime. And I, it made me just wonder that very often we, I wouldn't say fear, but we feel uncomfortable when confronted with someone's negative emotions because we suddenly have the impression we need to fix it or we need Mm -hmm. to do something with it. So there's this entire burden of responsibility. Whereas in the way how you explain it is, okay, I name it, it's there, and there's no need to do anything with that, just to put it there, and then it will vanish by itself. Well, you'll move through it more quickly. You'll find more meaning within those experiences as well. And as you say, it is human nature to want to fix that or help fix it either in yourself or the person you're hearing it from. But I've come to realize that most people are experiencing very similar things or have gone through similar experiences, but we've never had the chance to to learn that. So talking about those unpleasant experiences, emotions that I've experienced, ultimately gives other people permission to do the same or 
even if they don't say it out loud for them to realize that they're not alone. I've realized I'm not alone. And so that's really helpful. But it starts with somebody going, I'm going to go first. Mm. Interesting. Yes. Because uh, I would have thought it starts with someone asking the question and giving permission or speaking out an invitation, even if it's subtle. So by, for instance, with um, Patrick Cowden, who has also been on the podcast, he would ask the question for breakout rooms, how are you really? And this really and the pause changes the entire nature of the question and suddenly creates permission to participants to really explore how they are feeling. And it's a game changer. The way you describe it, though, is the other way around. I don't even have to wait until someone invites me to share. I can just take the decision for myself and share, and thereby inviting the other to follow. Inviting reciprocity. Mm. A thousand percent. The question that you just mentioned there, I think, is really great, but I take it a step further. Because even then, I still think it's limiting. We're limited by the ability to answer that question, how are you really? I love the emphasis on that. But so we ask, how do you feel? And then you, everybody's got the cards. So we pick a card. I'm feeling anxious and I'm feeling inspired. I'm feeling curious. I'm feeling uncertain. So we start every, almost every interaction in our community, almost every, 99% of them, or we encourage the people who use our game to start every interaction with the game with that simple question. Pick two cards that best describe how you feel. And so for the audience who, who might not know who you are, so um, so you're the founder of the Emotional Culture Deck. Do you want to briefly describe what it is before you explain why you're asking them to pick two emotions instead of just one? Yeah, great question. And it's a, often makes me feel quite paralyzed also the idea of how do I explain who I am and what this game is because it is it's such a complex area but at the same time our game is so I hope so simple the the emotional culture deck is an insanely simple card game to help people build workplace culture but within that we give people the words to describe the emotions that they're experiencing or would like to experience in the workplace And so we asked the question, how do you need to feel at work to be successful? Mm. Mm. And then you go, through, you go through our cards and you pick the top five emotions you need to feel to be successful at work. And then you pick the top five cards you don't want to feel at work, but you might from time to time. And with this, sorry to interrupt, you need to feel to be successful is because I think you can interpret this question two different ways. It's either centered on myself, so in order to be successful, I need to have these kind of emotions, or I'm living in a kind of organizations where in order to climb the career ladder, in order to be successful, I need to feel these emotions. Yeah, and so both those things are true at the same time. Our game, we don't prescribe you to look at it one way or the other. It's up to you to interpret that question and then answer the question based on your personal circumstance. Which I think comes back to my conversation. Yeah, facilitate the conversation. It comes back to that again, right? And and where this game, where this tool came from, I call it a game because you play it. But where this game came from was was some research, like 20 years of research out of Wharton University about emotional culture. The line that I remember the most when I first came across this was most organizations don't care how their people are feeling or should be feeling at work. 
they underestimate the role of emotion in building workplace culture because traditionally most leaders, most organizations focus on what they call cognitive culture. So how we think about the values and the purpose and the vision of a company. But emotions govern how we behave as human beings. Emotions drive our behavior. And so a conversation about workplace culture and how people behave and interact without a conversation about emotions at individual or collective level is not a true or a wholesome discussion about workplace culture because it turns out that feelings impact. Feelings, our emotions impact like almost everything in our lives, right? Attention, relationships, just how we make decisions, our creativity, our health. And if we're going to talk about workplace culture and not talk about emotions, well, then we're not talking about workplace culture, I don't think. Now it's the time to to pull my question out of the drawer. But before I <laughs> I want to come back to the question before, is that I assume that there is a reason why you asked them to pick two emotions instead of just one. Yeah. Yes and no. So the way our game is designed, we have 87 feelings within the game on cards. So, for instance, proud, inspired, curious, thoughtful, or alone, anxious, restless, uncertain. But the black cards are the pleasant emotions and the white cards are the unpleasant emotions. And so we'll ask people to pick two cards, one black card and one white card. So a black card represents a pleasant emotion and a white card represents an unpleasant emotion. And so in that, the start of that interaction, people are picking two emotions a black one, a pleasant one, and a white one, an unpleasant one. And that, for me, is a bit of a nudge to remind people to focus on the bright spot. So what's one black card? What's one pleasant emotion you're experiencing at the moment or or felt last week? And one, what's one white card? So unpleasant emotion that you felt last week. And that way we're having, I think, we're giving people permission to not only focus on the unpleasant experiences, but also focus on something that's going well. So that's the reason why I say two cards and an unpleasant and a pleasant emotion. I think it's it's genius in its simplicity because, as you say, it drives into a more balanced conversation. And I think the oh, it creates the awareness that both can coexist, mm. that we sometimes tend to forget. And it brings more shading into the conversation because especially if I'm in a super happy or very sad very irritated state, then adding just a very soft emotion in the other spectrum, it's like opens a door for a different sort of conversation instead of just focusing on the big, heavy, dominant part. Fascinating. Yeah, it, even more than that, it reminds us that these two things can coexist. You can be feeling pleasant emotions and unpleasant emotions at the same time. But it quickly creates a connection deeper than I'd experienced in my life before this because automatically we're nudging people to, to be vulnerable and vulnerability ultimately builds trust in my mind. Everybody, if you, yeah. coming back to my facilitation days, it's like everybody says I want to feel trust or I want trust and we need trust within this team. But vulnerability precedes trust. And what precedes vulnerability or what is the most vulnerable thing a human can do, and that's express how they feel, express mm -hmm. their emotions. And so by giving people the labels, yeah, helping them to do that, it sort of kicks off that chain. 
And imagine at the start of a workshop, this is why we do it. Imagine at the start of a workshop, instead of asking, how are you? And you get good, bad, okay, stressed, maybe you might get that. Or we ask, how are you feeling right now? How do you want to feel in this workshop? And you give people those words and then the, that automatically creates a different atmosphere, a different environment, uh, one that's full of connection and vulnerability. And agency. Agency, yeah. Yeah, if um, how do I want to feel in this workshop or after the workshop? Suddenly, I'm also I have some responsibility. Mm -hmm. And um, what do I need in order to feel that way? Well, that's it. There's agency. I'm now in control of that. It's not happening to me. I'm in control of that. But then also as the facilitator or the leader in the room, I'm learning about the people mm -hmm. in the room far quicker than then tell me something interesting about your life. I still like I like that type of question, those icebreakers, but sometimes they, they lead to very superficial conversations and I'm interested in how we go deep, fast, without it seeing overwhelming or confronting. Yeah. yeah, and I must say these questions tell me something interesting about your life or one thing about you that nobody else knows or these kind of questions stress me out extremely because I suddenly have this kind of performance thing later i'm like maybe there is no such thing as super interesting about my life beyond what you already know and i don't want to speak about my job so i find this extremely stressful mm. and yeah questions about our our being instead of doing i think yeah allow a more curious investigation and also to be more gentle to ourselves and to yeah so speaking about vulnerability and trust, I think how we can spoil that in a very fast way is by adding performance pressure into the space and speaking about labels and doing and yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about that the other day, actually, this, the performative nature of, of some of these workshop type experiences or the people who are leading them or facilitating them and And that was always something that I've seen really bad examples of that and been involved in really confronting and sort of intimidating experiences where there is a real performative nature to it. And and that's often one person at the front of the room who's either pontificating or or pretending to know everything and, and saying, you need that look at me because I'm the expert rather than inviting people in the room or in the group to have the have the spotlight or to be able to share their perspective. Which sounds strange, I guess, considering I'm talking about asking people to share how they feel, because that might seem to some people very performative or look at me type thing. But we're nudging people to develop self-awareness and build connections with people, not to be the center of attention and to then and then to hold the hold the floor or hold the room. Yeah, yeah. At the end, all emotions are created equal. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And the speaking about that is getting a glimpse behind the mask. So all the other question of uh, how would you describe yourself? What is a fact about you is all part of them. There might be different parts of the mask, but they're still there. It's still the outside, the protective shield. Mm, yeah. And the way I start that and the way we start this, if this is the first time playing with our game or answering that question in a workshop, It might start a bit superficial. People might not feel safe to to truly express or or pick the most confronting or the most vulnerable ones. But we're nudging people to to start. 
and we're showing people it's okay. And then over time, they build the confidence and they feel safer and they've developed the skills to to go deeper than what, what they might have before. And you just mentioned the, you first said the most confrontative and then you said the most vulnerable. And I find this fascinating. I would like to dig a bit deeper because it can be confrontative. So if I'm with a colleague and then I pick a very, I was about to say dark emotion, but with in your card deck, they're light emotion. <laughs> so yeah, maybe emotionally intense. Um, dark maybe emotion intense. on a white card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah, it's, I think it's a, I think it's one you and you'll take this the right way. I know because of the person you are, but I think it's dangerous for us to think of them as dark and light yeah. or bad and good or negative and positive, but think of them in, and maybe in, in intensity as well. Mm. Or I really like Dr. Mark Brackett's work. He talks about pleasant and unpleasant. Mm. I think, um, but also on a scale of intensity. So something that it could be unpleasant, but very intense. But it could also be unpleasant and not quite as intense, or it could be pleasant and very intense, or it could be pleasant and medium intensity. So those, like those, are the sort of the the spectrums I think about them on. Yes, thank you. Especially because in the on the edges of the very intense, we can even confuse them. I have the impression. So I recognize in myself in moments where I'm. I get information that is very exciting positively and is a huge opportunity. I get so excited that suddenly I switch totally on the other side that it becomes unpleasant because almost overwhelming. So mm. I think the edges are very similar. When you said confrontative, I was, I realized that it can be confrontative to be exposed to someone else's either unpleasant emotions or just very intense emotions in general. How would you facilitate the conversation or enable the participants to deal with these emotions of someone else? There's two things with that. I think the first one is the process of me or the person labeling them is part of that process in itself because by labeling the unpleasantness, I'm reducing the unpleasantness of them in that moment. So that in itself becomes contagious because mm. emotional contagion does exist. It's a real thing. We catch each other's emotions like the common cold. And so by me labeling the unpleasant emotion that I'm experiencing, I reduce that feeling, which means that I'm going to reduce the contagiousness of it in that moment. So that in itself is a form of working through it within a collective group. But also the curiosity of asking of the follow-up type questions. So especially for our what we call white card emotions, so the unpleasant ones, a really key follow-up question is tell us or explain what you've learned from that experience. And so the reframing of that experience from a seemingly or perceivably negative thing to a growth moment or a learning thing is a really powerful moment, not just for the self, but also for the team to go, okay, there's lessons in growth that can come from these unpleasant experiences. So yeah, those little bits that follow on from these conversations are really important. The first part is labeling it, but then what are those questions that we follow up with to help us help self, myself manage them, but also the group, the collective manage them. I have um, one general question. I heard you using feelings and emotions almost as synonyms, and I'm not sure whether I heard it as synonyms or whether this was intentional. Just want to make sure because I'm not a mother tongue speaker. <laughs> Where would you yeah, say it's, if there is one? So uh, it is intentional. 
and that will that will cause tension for a lot of people and it has caused a lot of tension for myself for a long time as well and so feelings and emotions depending on which scientists you talk to uh, what your belief is around this what doctrine you follow can be seen as separate things separate things however i've spent so much time trying to understand learn about and distinguish between the two and um, that it caused me a lot of anxiety one for a start but then i came across i think it was dr mark brackett's work or it could have been susan david another amazing thinker in the space but ultimately they said well for our fundamentally there are differences but we could scientists can even argue about that but for this conversation let's think of them as as similar although there might be micro differences or or not just micro differences but significant differences at the same time it's sometimes easier to begin with just to think of these things as the same feelings and emotions um and as soon as i heard him he's the professor at yale for the center of emotional intelligence i thought if it's okay for somebody like that at that status in the scientific community to say just think of these as interchangeable for now just so we can have this conversation rather than get stuck in the granular what's the definition what's the difference between these and then have a discussion about that rather than make sure the discussion is about the thing that it's going to impact that made me feel more at ease about it and i think this is such a good example of the human nature and how much we try to avoid having the, these kind of conversations so it's almost a really it's a defense mechanism i think to get lost in these minute details and granularities when actually you want or need to speak about something that is more vulnerable yeah well it's easier for people to and it but it's also it's easier for people to have an it well some people find it easier to have an intellectual or scientific debate about that rather than lean into the discomfort of expressing how they feel or their emotions yes. and so i use the word interchangeably Yeah, which doesn't sit well for a lot of people, but I'm okay with that because I come back to my my wanting to feel rebellious and also antagonize and and instigate different conversations about it. But um scientifically there is a distinction between them, but I think that's of a minor importance for the conversation that I want to help people unlock and the connections I think I know can be created from having a discussion around our feelings and emotions when you've got the tools. And I I can imagine that organizations or managers would feel reluctant to have that conversation or to invite emotions or invite to a workshop speaking about emotions at the workplace because they don't want this touchy feely let's sit in the circle speak about our emotions and feel like the alcoholics anonymous type of feeling where do you draw the line what's the difference about having a professional conversation about emotions and the slippery slope of almost becoming group therapy at the workplace and i might be a I think that no no it's no it's true though but i think that's a defense mechanism in itself from leaders i don't want to get into a therapy session as the defensive mechanism or the rationale the post rationalization for i don't want to have this conversation myself because emotions are hard they are data they're not soft they're not just for therapy emotions impact attention relationships decision making that's scientifically true and valid people can argue with that and i get that as well but if if emotions impact attention relationships and decision making name me one organization in the world where the currency of their workplaces isn't attention relationships and decision making 
every organization, every leader, every team has to make decisions. And hopefully they're thinking about how they make better decisions. So if that's true, well, then emotions matter because emotions impact decision making. And relationships, every organization or team in the world is built on relationships, how people work together. If that's true, then emotions matter because how I feel impacts our relationship. And then attention, what we put our attention on grows. If an organization wants to grow, they need to put their attention on something that will cause it to grow. And if that's the case, emotions matter because our emotions impact our ability to put attention on something. Because if I feel anxious, afraid, or alone, my attention is not going to be on the thing that we need it to be on. So there's nothing soft or therapy-like when it comes to talking about emotions in the workplace because they impact those things which impact an organization and the ability to succeed. So I love that question because it does come up a lot. It's like, I don't want this to be therapy. I don't have the skills for this. But the reality is, if we don't have this conversation, we're doing our organization, our teams a disservice and an injustice because those things drive our organization. And thank you. I love how you disentangle it. And I totally buy it. Yes. Emotions are not a soft thing. It's a hard thing. And I love the, it's a hard thing in, in both, in both ways of the term. Yeah. Yep. And still I, And I think the, the audience would be curious on how you actually get organizations to go there because, and that's my provocative question that I'm taking out of the drawer. And now it's a little bit more nuanced even. I can imagine that there's a very special type of leader who would call you and say, I heard about the emotional culture deck. I want to have a workshop on our emotional culture and the team. If they already have this awareness to make the move, then maybe they need it the least. On the other hand, those who are resistant, they need it the most. And these are not the ones who would call you, hey, need a workshop on emotional culture. Can you please yeah. come in to facilitate this vulnerable conversation? Yeah, yeah. So how do you deal with with the fact that those who need it most actually don't know or won't ask for it? Well, those who need it most don't even know it exists. Those who don't need it also don't know it exists because emotional culture isn't a thing that is common. It's not commonly understood. It's not even commonly known. We know culture. We don't know emotional or cognitive culture. So for one, people don't even know to ask for it because they don't know it's a thing. Um, but two, my approach to this, first and foremost, is one to call it a game. This is this is my way of, of introducing it to people. So all we're going to do is play a game that's going to help us with our workplace culture, which can be confronting for some, but it's a, it's permission to lean in and play with it rather than if and when I've said, let's get our team together to discuss the, the scientific makeup of emotions and the impact of behavior and the performance of a team. That scares the hell out of people because it suddenly is becoming this grandiose thing that's bigger than been her. Brené Brown talked about her work for 20 years in vulnerability, saying that she didn't even mention the word vulnerability in her work. It was like a Trojan horse. She would say, we're going to come in and work on workplace communication. It just happened that she injected vulnerability stuff into that. And it's the same with our work. If somebody is interested in emotional culture and they've come to us, we will use that language. But for most people, we won't use that language. We'll just talk about workplace culture. It just happens that our game introduces them to emotional culture and emotions. 
but we tend to stay i tend to advise people to stay away from that for certain people because that will be a red flag and make them go i don't want to do this which might seem a bit manipulative potentially i prefer to call it a trojan horse because uh, i've experienced the power of it even when those leaders who say i don't care how my people feel i just want them to do their effing job that's happened to me even with that leader um, i've seen that person lean into our game and suddenly be labeling how they feel their emotions how they want their people to feel and seeing the impact of it despite their initial reaction being i don't care about this that's very interesting do you remember the moment where it switched for that person yes i remember vividly where i was standing in the room i remember the the conference center or the the workshop place that is that i remember the part of the world when that woman actually female executive said that to me or said that to the group and i happened to be there i remember that clear as day and then the next thing i remember clear as day was her flicking through our cards and pulling out cards saying i want my people to feel this i want them to feel this i don't want them to feel this i remember those two things i didn't see on her face the aha moment but i remember me feeling really confronted by that statement because it's my game and my tool <laughs> and feeling intimidated by that and wanting to fight her on that statement but deciding not to i made a conscious decision in that moment to not not respond to that because i just wanted her to experience the tool experience the game and have that aha moment for herself which happened for her because i saw her then pulling the cards out and explaining these things so i see it in people i'm there to watch that unfold it happens time and time again it's that's why i feel comfortable saying i know that people want to talk about it they don't know how so if i understand it correctly for this example she might not even have been aware herself about this aha moment but just performed her role of playing the game okay this is what we're doing and by doing that suddenly revealed the emotions and and became more open yeah and we slowly i thought anyway slowly started to nudge a shift in her belief her belief set around around this she went from going this doesn't even matter i don't care how my people even feel which is a belief set around emotions aren't powerful they they don't deserve to be in this conversation to to oh well i can see how this conversation about emotions is going to impact so i'm interested in these small nudges if we do more of them over time yeah. they slowly start to change belief sets and change how we see the world yeah. rather than me telling her she's wrong and she should think differently about it which some people that's what the approach might be comes back to my facilitator in me right i've i want to facilitate this process so she can have those aha moments and discover these things for herself because ultimately if you don't believe me there's a thing called the backfire effect <clears throat> not sure if we've talked about this before but the backfire effect is this notion this uh, this phenomenon that if i believe the world is round and you believe the world is flat any evidence that i present to you backfires on me it just reinforces your belief set further <clears throat> yeah and that that boggles my mind when i think about that that effect that backfire effect and so because of that my ever since i discovered that i started to go well, it's not my job to try to tell you to think differently or to or present data or evidence that suggests you're wrong because that's not going to do anything it's just going to create a further divide between us yeah and then at the it's end i would even label you as arrogant because you're confronting me with all this data that is fake news anyway exactly right yeah and you and you become more stubborn and more entrenched in your belief and so that could have been my approach with that woman this is really powerful and successful executive leader in a 
multinational company. That could have been my approach, but that would have meant the start of that experience was her being more entrenched in her belief rather than her discovering that there might be a different way of seeing this herself. Which is a perfectly emotional response to feeling intimidated and threatened. So, mm -hmm. and another reason why emotions are so important that if we don't feel safe, we are not open for any cognitive information and not feeling safe. So fear is a very strong emotion. So everything that we can do first to create an emotional relationship and a state of, okay, I'm safe here. I can trust you. Then I'm open to listen to your words. And before mm -hmm. that, my brain is not able to, to absorb or to process any of the information. No, exactly right. And that's true of adults, but especially true of children in schools when it comes to education. If you're afraid or alone or anxious, how could we as educators or how could we as parents or community leaders expect our children to learn and develop when when they're experiencing such high levels of those emotions because they can't put their attention on what we're asking them to learn or helping them to discover. And so that applies at family level in childhood and through to workplaces as well. Yeah. After so many years of facilitating these conversations, what remains your number one challenge, your number one facilitation challenge? It's such a great question. The number one part of that's tripped me up because there's so many more than one challenges. I mean, down to the micro level, like I'm always trying to fit way too much in, like which sounds absurd and just so superficial and so simple, but there's so much I try to fit into things and I'm always... I'm always realizing I'm putting too much in and I need to give more space. And these conversations that I have on a regular basis need space. They need room, mental, emotional, physical space. And so that's definitely one. This is rooted in my own imposter syndrome, is my own fear. My own fear of will people respond to this? Will they care about it? Will it land? Will it have impact? Like those things which are ultimately partly out of my control because It's my fear that's creating that in me. And so often it's myself, yeah, my own imposter syndrome. That's the thing that's holding me back and my biggest challenge as a facilitator. And we don't talk about that enough as facilitators, I don't think, or facilitators don't talk about it, or people who facilitate these conversations don't talk about it, is what emotions am I bringing to the space that will impact the people that are in the room? Because once again, emotions are contagious. So if I'm feeling anxious, afraid, and alone, then people will catch that from me subliminally quickly and that impacts the experience of people especially as facilitators when we're there to hold the space and so we hold the space to create safety for the group if we feel anxious and alone how can we hold space for togetherness and empathy yeah we can't invite that in there if we're not experiencing that ourselves. and i used to think of that as For me, there's two parts of it. There's some fascinating research into how we try to embody those emotions even if we're not experiencing them. It's sort of like surface acting. It's like acting it out. If we're not feeling it, the notion of expressing it, even if we're not deeply feeling it, is actually helpful because people will catch that from us. But you can't expect to do it for a long period of time. This is what I've come to learn. So it's not helpful if you're doing it consistently over a long period of time. That's unhealthy for you. But it is possible to act it out because one, we then catch that ourselves a little bit, but also the people around us then catch that out. That's really useful, I think, in customer-facing environments if you're a service person, mm. because the emotions that you bring into that interaction, well, then your customers or stakeholders will experiencing it, will experience, are more likely to experience it, sorry, 
And so trying to surface act that for a short period of time can be useful, even if you might not be deeply feeling it. So I think about that a lot, which is why I generally start most of my interactions with people. If I'm speaking on stage, which terrifies me, but I do sort of part and parcel of my job a little bit or facilitating groups of people, I will start by expressing how I feel in that moment because that helps me manage with it straight away. And then other people are more likely to, to catch the, the feeling of it, that feeling of at ease that I have now by expressing it rather than the anxiety and the fear that I have when I walk in the room. Mm. Yeah. There's a label, the emotion guy. Yeah. 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 And my fear around that, funnily enough, though, is that people might start to think it's performative. Mm. And that comes back to my imposter syndrome again, but it's, it's not performative at all. It generally helps me, but I know that that also helps other people as well. And just because I've experienced it so much. And I think it's, um, it might feel performative because it is trained behavior. So I think, mm. and why you're training this behavior, it is performative until it becomes your nature. And then for those who don't know it or who feel uncomfortable, it's easy to just say, oh, that's a performance. It's performative. He's just doing it to sell his cards. I just try to imagine how it would be if we, when we ask someone, how are you doing? We get this more nuanced replies. I think a, a deeper connection could be possible, even if we don't go there and just uh, let it be for what it is. Yeah. I've, I've seen it. It's, it is possible. I've seen the outcome of it, but it does. Once again, it starts with, it starts with self. It starts with me and yeah. me being able to, to label those. So yeah, coming back to your question around what's my biggest challenge as a facilitator, it's my own fears, my own imposter syndrome. Not everybody deals with that, but it turns out lots of people do deal with that. It's not discussed a lot, but yeah, the fear stems around, will people care about this? Will it land? What if people don't lean into this or they don't get into this? Because I mean, often a lot of people who come into the room or these rooms don't want to be there themselves. They haven't signed up for this. They're told they have to do it, Yeah, which is a challenge to overcome in itself. And one thing that I love to do in these situations, and it works like a charm, is to give them permission. So if I know that I'm hosting a group and they actually don't want to be there, I start with a warm-up. Okay, if you don't want to be here, you would prefer to be somewhere else. Come and stand with me. If you're actually looking forward to a workshop, go and stand on the other side. And then people just stand wherever they feel they want to stand. And this produces laughter and reduces the kind of anger of Because I think there's an anger involved if you have to be somewhere where you actually don't want to be. And by giving permission to express that, you're totally taking it away. Yeah, it's fascinating. Do you think that creates a divide, though, between... Do you think that creates a divide in the room between the people who want to be there? And like, uh, I guess it's already there, right? So you're just bringing that to the surface and acknowledging yeah. it. So you make it explicit. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Does the, usually it rather creates laughter. Because yeah. those who then, so I would stand on the side who doesn't want to be there to show that, to model, okay, there is permission, you may. Yeah. And I think this would already create a first irritation, like, okay, this is odd, you don't want to be here. And then it turns into a game and takes the tension out of the room. And then if, mm. if there's a big portion of people would stand with me, I ask them to give me a chance and to hang in there for an hour or 90 minutes. And if they don't like it after the first coffee break, they're free to leave. 
I like that. That's that's a lovely thought. Yeah. My fear, not fear, my intrigue is what if the boss is in the room and then he's I guess this is comes back to these sort of these emotions that exist, right? What if my boss is in the room and he has seen me on that side of the room. So I've just told him I don't want to be there, but my performance bonus is based on the fact that I need to pretend that I need to be here. I've experienced that a lot with our game because as I say, people don't often they don't choose to be there. And I remember this one time with working with an insurance agency and I just sensed in this room, I walked into the room and I just got, there was a cold feeling about it. There was this, who are you? Who is this young guy coming in here to talk about emotion? And there was no warmth in the room. And before anybody had said anything to me, because nobody said anything to me when I sat down at the boardroom table, I just said, put your hand up if you think this is a crock of shit. Because <laughs> in my mind, I just had to, I just had to address it because it was just so confronting and cold and, and almost hostile in a way. And like, Seven of the twelve people in the room put their hand up, and I said to them, mm-hmm. I, "And I said to them, I don't, I, I don't blame you. I would also, if I was sat in your seat, think this is a crock of shit. But let's just have a play. Let's go through this, and at the end of it, let's have this conversation again and see what you think of it. But until, so let's go on this journey. But yeah, my approach here was to like I just needed to give people a chance to admit that, so we could then put that on the table and then move into the experience without that being the thing that was clouding the experience." Yeah, I think the implicit, the unvoiced is always the energy sucker. Mm. It's the leak of energy that you yeah. yeah. And once you yeah. voice it, it's uh, yeah, it's like with the with the unpleasant emotions that you just mentioned. Same effect. Yeah, same, same thing. I still remember how fast my heart was going when I made that decision to ask that question in the room. But I, my feeling was that it, at least it, it alleviated all that tension because <laughs> people were like, yeah, I do think this is. A waste of time. Yeah. It's actually the biggest compliment, I think, if in the beginning of the workshop, everyone is rather critical. And at the end, you do have these conversations and you make a change. I mean, that's a cultural shift. That's a paradigm shift almost. So although it feels uncomfortable in the beginning, it's actually the best situation to really have an impact. Yeah. Labeling the discomfort, working through the discomfort, I think is really powerful rather than suppressing it. And I think what I would be curious also on behalf of the audience is what are best practices or lessons learned how to use or not use this card game as a facilitator? Because as you just described, if even you have these situations that are quite daring, I can only imagine that for a facilitator, maybe um, doing it for the first time, it takes courage. So what would be your best practices or what would be your advice to facilitators who use the emotional culture deck for the first time? It's an amazing question because I get asked that a lot. I sort of think back to my own experience. I like to teach from my own experience rather than theory. And my own experience was that that discomfort at the beginning when I first designed this game and started using it with people was so important to my own learning journey with the game. There isn't a perfect or a right way or a wrong way of using our tool, which is uncomfortable for a lot of people who just want the, here's the five steps and the perfect way to do it. But really it is. It sucks for people, right? Because they're like, oh, give me the five steps. I need to do this perfectly how does it work i don't want to get this wrong but weirdly getting it wrong all those times from when i started made me a better facilitator of this game and helped me understand what worked and what didn't work myself because every room is different everybody is different and so 
the courage of leaning into the discomfort of not knowing how to do it perfectly is the most important thing as a facilitator of our game. Because if you can wrestle with that discomfort and have the courage to step into it, then that's going to be evident for the people who are in the room. And then that becomes a story for you to share with people in the room about this conversation. And so we have to just leap. We have to leap into the unknown of not sure how it's going to go. Trust that the game works. Trust that the tool works because of the hundreds of thousands of people who do it around the world and all different cultures. As long as you buy into that concept that it works, you then have to only tackle your own discomfort, your own fear, your own uncertainty, your own insecurity. And from that, you become a way better facilitator of this game. Mm. Way better. And as a leader, if you're the leader leading this game as well, the same thing applies for you. It's like lean into the unknown of not of being unsure how your people might respond. Lean into your own discomfort. Because I do promise people that as long as you ask yourself post-workshop, and what can I do better next time? How can I improve on that? You will continue to develop skills in this space. Yeah, it's such a brilliant answer. Thank you. I think I would have been surprised if you if you came with the five steps approach. And People want the five steps, but it's not five steps, unfortunately. And I think it's also in our nature as facilitators that we do have the responsibility and the creativity to make it our own five steps. And from what you're from your answer, I almost also got the notion of trust. If you're willing to lean in and to to go with your discomfort and do it anyway, it also signals trust towards the group. So you trust them to be able to go there. You trust them to hold the space for you as a facilitator that it's okay and safe. And I think this creates, yeah, it's also one of those contagious emotions that you give them the credit of trust. Before even having started. Yeah, hugely so. The, so the feeling of courage, the experiencing that emotion as a facilitator is contagious for the people in the room. They'll then be more likely to feel that as well. And that's what you want. That's what we're inviting in the room. I mean, saying that there's not five steps, there aren't five steps, but there are suggestions that I always give people based on my own experience. And the first one is we, as the facilitator or the leader of the conversation, have to go first because that invites that reciprocity. We have to set the tone, because if we go first, it's more likely that people will reciprocate and then also share. If we don't go first, I've seen it. I remember in a session I ran in Sydney three or four years ago, we had a room of about 16 people in a big horseshoe, in a horseshoe type in a horseshoe type setup, where I was sat at the, in the middle of it and everybody around me. And I went first, as I always do, because I want to set the tone, show vulnerability, invite reciprocity, also manage my own fear and anxiety. And then I asked the question, pick one one black card. I think I only asked, pick one black card. Pick one black card that describes how you felt in the past week. So I didn't do the black and the white card, just one black card. And by the, I think the third person in the in line said, oh, I didn't, I didn't experience any black cards last week. So please, like, skip me. And so we skipped it. And I said, that's fine. We skipped them. And then seven or eight more people had a go and shared their one pleasant emotion that they felt in the last week. And we got all the way to the end. And that lady put her hand back up and said, actually, I changed my mind. I've got a black card that I want to share. And I thought that was such a wonderful moment because her instinctual response was, I didn't have any pleasant emotions in the last week. I only had white cards. But then she realized after hearing those stories, that there was something that she experienced that was pleasant, that was a black card, 
and she shared that story. Nice. And I really love that. And that, that could be to do with the group dynamics of not wanting to feel like you're standing out or not fitting in that potentially might come into that as well. But also I felt like everybody else in the room gave her permission to do the thing that instinctively, instinctually she didn't want to do. Yeah. And I think it's also beautiful that it was just okay to, for her to remain silent and not for you to think, oh, I need to fix it. I need to make sure that everyone speaks. I need to include everyone. Because I can imagine that in such a situation, there's a lot of overthinking going on. How mm -hmm. to deal with that? Am I letting her down? Is this good enough? Should I have asked everyone to pick two cards? I mean, there's a lot of pressure, right? Yeah. Oh, it's terrifying. It's, it's, I still feel terrified when I, even though I've done it hundreds and hundreds of times, I still feel, or thousands of times, I still feel terrified. But I know it's okay because that's part of the game, giving people permission not to choose a card if they choose. But when they see so many other people doing it and they see that it is possible, it gives them permission to do it and helps them go, oh, okay, maybe I can. And that's part of the discovery within our tool and within this, this world that I've created with our game. Is there a card or an emotion that you see coming up most of the time? So is there a dominant emotion? Or maybe even a uh, dominant emotion by part of the world. We're slowly getting better at starting to collate some of this data, interestingly. Like one day, that's the utopia for us is to be able to collect the outputs of everybody in the world who are using our game. Although we don't know everybody who uses it because we give it away for free as well. So it's it ends up in places we don't even know yet. But the other part to that, the other answer to that question is it's so dependent also on the facilitator and what industry they're working in. Because certain industries or certain groups of people are, are experiencing collective emotion, different collective emotions. My instinctual response wants to be, we hear a lot that the word overwhelm comes up. Overwhelmed is one of the cards. And our group of certified consultants, the one that I'm dealing with on a more regular basis, we hear those stories as like another team today picked the word overwhelmed as the number one emotion that they're experiencing in their team, which might be an indication of the time that we're in at the moment or have been in. So that does come up a lot. And then I'm curious about that in itself because is it is it overwhelm that we're experiencing or is it just easy to pick that rather than to explore the emotions that are leading to that, mm. uh, for yeah. example? But that's certainly one that, that comes up a lot. But, it's so, yeah, it's so dependent on the group, the time, the person. So I wish we collected better data and yeah, we, will, we will. Version. Not in the sense of online that you or the listeners will be thinking about, And by that, I mean like an app which you would then flick through and then pick cards. We don't have that. And we are specifically not gone down that route yet because I'm fascinated at the moment and will remain probably in real world face-to-face -face conversations rather than being stuck behind a screen or an app or a piece of technology because this conversation is, is such a human conversation and I want to encourage more of the face-to-face, -face, the physical, the tangible. Yeah. But we do have a way of playing it remotely by giving people the labels on a screen that you can share. Mm. So via either, either via a projector in a room. So if you're doing it with two or 300 people, people can see them on a screen and then you select the label. But there's not actually a digital experience that you can play the game with yet. One day in the future. But I also want to make sure that we begin by creating these face-to-face Yeah. connections and experiences that don't have a barrier there's not a computer between us there's not a digital screen between us although there's a digital screen between us here if we both have the game it's way more powerful also because i'm interested in 
there's a thing called a three-point conversation. I can never attribute this to the person who who came up with it, but a three-point conversation is if it's just you and I talking together like we are now, it's a two-point conversation. You're a point and I'm a point and we're eye to eye. But if we're talking about something confronting or challenging or difficult, in a two-point conversation, that becomes even more challenging. But as soon as we introduce a third point, like a card, mm. now our attention, now our gaze, now our, our focus is on the third point. Yes. And it becomes about that and not about you and That's, I. Yeah. And, and psychologists and counsellors apparently use this technique a lot, especially in the rural community. So agricultural communities, if they're having um, sessions or clinical sessions or sessions together, they'll often sit together, but facing out towards the horizon because the horizon is the third point. So now it becomes about projecting our emotion or our thoughts or our mind to that rather than towards each other, which make it difficult. So how cards are the third point? So all of a sudden I'm talking about feeling insecure, but it's not me and you, it's now this third point the and what's on the card. Yeah. It's a projection onto that. It's a transference onto that. And it becomes a lot easier to talk about feeling insecure with the third point than it does if it's just you and I. Good point. Yeah. Which makes conversations in a car so easy or in a museum. <laughs> oh, my yeah. word. So my favorite thing to do is I love the five love languages. Mm. Do you know who came up with the five love languages? Uh, I can't remember his name. I always forget his name. The five love, my, one of my love languages is quality time. Mm -hmm. And my favorite place to spend time with my wife is in the car driving because our third point is the horizon. Mm. And so my natural state isn't to be vulnerable at all. I was brought up in a, in a family where vulnerability wasn't seen as a weakness, wasn't overtly talked about seen as a weakness. We just weren't vulnerable because of the unarticulated weakness that it was. And so it's not a natural state for me, but I find it really easy to spend quality time with my wife in the car driving because I'm driving and it's always about the horizon and I can discuss and dive deeper into these things. So, yeah, museums exactly with the gazes on that third point. Yeah, I love that. Beautiful. So third points, just building on that idea, I, I think about how I create third points in these. The cards create one, but if you don't have the cards in a, a workshop, in a facilitated conversation is how do we create a third point for people? And I think that's, that's also why Lego series play works so well. Mm. So everything that is tactile, everything that you're doing with your hands, you create a third point. Yeah. Mm. As long as that third point isn't a post-it note because people have, it's like <laughs> death by a thousand post-it notes. After our exploration call, and I always ask, What would be the working title that you suggest for the conversation? And you mentioned facilitating F-word conversations. What do you mean by that? I don't even remember saying that, but maybe I came up with that name because there's some alliteration in it. I'm interested mm -hmm. in alliteration, facilitating F-word conversations. I mean, ultimately, I just mean helping people talk about how they feel, the which, as you said, is seen as fluffy or soft or should be the domain of therapy. Mm -hmm. But I'm on a mission and a crusade to make that domain of everyday life because emotion governs everything we do in our lives. Whether we want to believe it or not, our emotion governs everything we do in our life. And if that's the case, we need to get better at having those conversations. And I think as facilitators or as people who facilitate or coaches or consultants or however you might label yourself, is, is if we can get better at that, we're going to ultimately help 
people, we're going to have a bigger impact, but it's going to help us get to the outcome we want to get to or you want to get to because getting to those outcomes don't exist without without discussing those emotions or those feelings because of those things we talked about, how they impact relationships, attention, decision-making, all of those things, right? If you're a facilitator, those things are your currency. And if they're your currency, we need to be talking about emotion. Yeah. Therefore, I was um, thinking of a digital version, not even for the game, but for the self-check-in. So as you yeah. said, it starts with ourselves and voicing or naming our emotions. And then to just increase our emotional literacy, <laughs> literally, yeah. by doing the check-in and having a kind of, or flipping the cards, having the cards and seeing, okay, so how do I feel actually today? And thereby becoming more nuanced, I think is a very nice exercise. So for, people, we do, offer, we do offer the ability for people to put it, turn it into an iBook on their phone, like a PDF so you can flip mm -hmm. through it. I, uh, my wife and I, when we took our first baby, Isabella, on the plane for the first time, and I remember sitting on the tarmac and sensing that something wasn't quite right with Becky. My assumption, my assumption, my perception was she was feeling anxious and really worried and a bit afraid about how this was going as we were about to take off. And we just got the cards out and she picked five cards that she was feeling right now on the plane. People were looking at us like we've lost our minds, but it mattered for us and it helped her in that moment because she was able to label those things. And that's the third point. And that's the third point, yeah. I take the cards everywhere I go, so we had the cards. But yeah. if you don't have cards, yeah, you gotta... having a photo of them on the phone. Oh. I'll order my deck of cards right now. <laughs> Come, I don't have them yet. Well, you can. You'll have them soon, and then uh, and then hopefully you, you'll be thinking about them on a – yeah, I mean, our game, it could be our game, it could be any way you can write. I still use Dr. Mark Brackett's mm. mood meter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'd love it if people bought our game or invested or downloaded our game, but ultimately it doesn't matter whose tool you use or what emotions you have in front of you. As long as they're accessible to you, yeah. you're going to be impacting yourself and those people around you positively. Yeah, which would be such a beautiful way to end the podcast. It's one of those mic-dropping moments. And there's one question that I haven't asked that I ask every guest on the show is what makes a workshop fail emotions <laughs> i didn't even prepare for that and that's an admission of my own lack of preparation for that i didn't know that question was coming but it just makes sense because my biggest fear the biggest challenge for me in workshops is my own emotion but the emotions of people in the workshop themselves that's mm. the thing that will either help it succeed or fail and i think about all the workshops i've ever run which is why at the end of every workshop, we do a one-card checkout. So pick one card that describes how you felt in today's session. And that is a closing. That's a natural close as well, and it gives you a chance to express yourself and, and connect because if everybody's picked the word joy or picked similar words and you go, oh, there's somebody else like me, so it's a moment of connection. It's a moment of connection as well. Mm. Thank you. I'm glad I asked the question. So what's your one-card checkout for now? Grateful. Grateful grateful that you reached out and invited me to be part of this because I'd listened to your work and read your work and been a follower. So grateful, uh, grateful for the chance to share my world with people, with those listeners. Grateful that I get the chance to even do this work, to even have um, stumbled across this idea. Like Sigal Basad, who's the researcher behind all this work, like she passed away last year, really tragically. And, and I just feel grateful that I've got a chance to continue that work and 
make people aware of it so they can use it to impact the people they serve and and their own lives so yeah i just feel grateful for for being part of your ecosystem your universe as well thank you appreciate that i feel grateful and calm yeah with enough food for thought so thank you for that amazing thank you well yeah it's been a privilege and i feel very grateful so thank you Thank you for staying tuned and for listening to the show. I know how busy you are, and I appreciate that you're sharing your two most valuable resources with me and my guest, your time and your attention. If you're looking for more conversation with other facilitators and for a community of practice, why don't you join Never Done Before, the community that I have built, and many of my podcast guests are already members. Visit neverdonebefore.org and I wish to see you there.